Hello, and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's legendary 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Well, that's what we normally do. Um, today is a little bit different. This uh, We've reached the halfway point of the album, roughly. Uh, and I wanted to take a little bit of a side trip, um, a little little scenic route. So a little over a decade ago, um, I heard a really, really striking cover version of Captain Beefheart's Lick My Decals Off Baby. I was, I was struck because it's a very faithful cover in many respects, but the singer really, really makes the song her own. And with a voice as, as, as immediately striking and dominant as Don Van Vliet, it is particularly impressive to me to hear a vocalist take on that material and make it make it uh, something put her signature on it so um i sought her out and much to my uh much to my delight she is willing to discuss the process of working on that song and approaching vocals in general she is a singer a songwriter a singing teacher the staggeringly talented weba garretts and weba thank you so much for being on the show oh my god i'm speechless thank you that was a, a very lovely um introduction i've just Really, this is a treat for me to um, de- dive even more deeply into the amazing world of Captain Beefheart. Um, it's such a treat to um, be part of, inhabit, or go into his world. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And yes, yeah. it is It is a delight to, as as terrifying as his world sometimes is, it, <laughs> over, over these last few months, it has been a, a consistent balm to my psyche to be able to just yeah. sink into the twists and turns of his music and this album. Mm. Yeah. Great so stuff. So before we get too far into to discussing Beefheart, um, I wondered if I, you could talk a little bit about your own personal history. Um, I was reading your bio and it indicates that you, um, from a very young age, you studied piano, clarinet, oboe, and guitar, and then started singing at 14. So what, was music really important in your family growing up? My family was pretty, very artistic. My mom was, was an amazing uh, painter and um, was always painting. And so we were surrounded and I was sort of in this womb of like psychedelic color. And uh, <laughs> we lived in San Francisco in the uh, mid 60s. And both my brother and I took guitar lessons on Union Street um, from guys uh, that were in Big Brother and the Holding Company. And my parents took us to the Fillmore um, to see, you know, Janis Joplin, Cream, Howlin' Wolf, all these. So we were just kind of, uh, yeah. And that was pretty amazing because I was only maybe 10 or 11 at the time. My brother is three years older than me. And so he kind of... um, indoctrinated me musically and like early blues and stuff like that. Cause that's what he was playing on guitar. So I listened a lot to mostly Paul Butterfield, actually not the original source, but I love Paul Butterfield. Um, Great band. Yeah. Uh, but my, my father was sort of a frustrated pianist and writer. So he was always sort of banging on the piano sort of badly. And I love my dad, but um, Music was played all the time in our house, mostly classical music, but my parents had a great hi-fi. And so we were just, and they spoiled me. They paid for music lessons and sent me to music camp and, you know, did all the things that 
great parents do. So, but we were not like, you know, the Von Trapp family singers. It wasn't that kind of <laughs> musical family. <laughs> so. Did you know early on that this was something you wanted to pursue as a career? Um, well, as a way of life, for sure. I love, I mean, I really love singing all the time. I just would go walking and singing and that was just sort of my, my happiness. Um, but I did sort of pursue different things before I really decided on singing. I, I pursued dance for a while, but I started so late that I, I couldn't really be a ballerina. And then, um, uh, I basically, uh, also studied theater and got really deeply into avant-garde theater when I was in college and um, loved that. But at, I went to Sarah Lawrence, uh, which is a liberal arts college back East. And um, they had a really great experimental theater program. And part of that was doing pop singing, but they would make these sort of very elaborate sort of subversive productions of pop songs. And <laughs> it was really fun and kind of edgy. And I realized that I love singing and I love the idea of kind of, um, you know, uh, how you could present singing in a kind of subversive way. And so, uh, when I got out of school, I hooked up with a guy named Richard Hochberg and we sang cabaret music, but we would like cover like the talking heads. I mean, it was not your typical sort of cabaret kind of thing. And that came, that brought me out to Los Angeles. And that's where really my life kind of changed because it was, I got here in 1979 and it was an amazing culture. I mean, it was just like, tons of performance art, tons of punk rock music, uh, but nothing was like stratified. Everything, you would go out to a club and you would see somebody like Johanna Went or John Fleck, or like it was just this, or then you would see X. It was just like this mixture of stuff. So all performance artists, dancers, musicians were all kind of communicating and collaborating. So it was a very rich, exciting time to to be here. I mean, I, I love LA still, but um, as a 21 year old person, it was pretty amazing. So that's really kind of where I started saying, okay, I really want to do music and uh, was in a couple of different bands and, and really started pursuing it once I got out here. You've, you've had a real knack for ending up in these kind of musical cultural epicenters to go from San Francisco in the late mid to late 1960s to Los Angeles in the early 80s. I mean, these are two incredibly vital creative periods in, yeah. in music and art. Yeah. I mean, I was too young really to appreciate the, I was sure. only like 11 when I was in San Francisco, but I mean, it definitely touched me because, you know, so much of that music uh, and musical ideas influenced what I was, I came to do in the 80s. But yeah, I was very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, LA was really the, like Paris. I mean, it was at that time, it was a really super vital place. So, and that's when I first saw Beefheart. I, uh, I basically, you know, I love Frank Zappa, you know, when we were growing up, we, I mm -hmm. love freak out and I love all the songs and people used to call me Weeba Zappa. It was my nickname. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but you know, Susie cream cheese, anyway, the wind blows all those songs I loved. Um, but I saw Beefheart in, I think it was either 80 or 81 at the Whiskey. And um, 
that just, it just, he blew my mind totally. I mean, I still, the image of him standing on stage, he had this, he was dressed in black with a hat on and he had a little table by the microphone with a huge pitcher of orange juice. (laughs) And it was just like, I mean, that's all I remember, except that he was just so, I I just, I could not stop thinking about him after I heard his music and just witnessed him. So um, anyway. Yeah, no that that he was he was an interesting performer, and I, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. So you you mentioned avant garde theater and and the impact that that had on you, and and presenting like traditional music or pop music in these kind of subversive or strange formats. And and I was watching some of your work on YouTube and the uh, the Weeba show, which was the, the cabaret, I believe was the cabaret act you were referring to is definitely, there's a strong element of theatricality and comedy and, um, uh, kind of reframing this music to, to what degree. And I don't have a great way of phrasing this question, but (laughs) are, are singing and performing kind of, are, are they, are they intimately linked to you? Is, is singing as satisfying if you're doing it behind a microphone in a studio as if you were on stage and have some kind of uh, performative aspect to it? Well, I think they're, they're, they're definitely different experiences. Um, uh, but you, to me, I mean, it's, there's a lot in, to, in that question to sort of unpack, but um, when, to me, I think for performing, whether it's acting or uh, singing um, I'm not a pure in- instrumentalist, so I can't speak for that. But to me, it's kind of like when you're really like in the zone, it's like channeling. It's like it's a spiritual experience. Um, and, uh, you know, when and so I feel like that can happen in the in the recording studio or on stage Um certainly when you do it on stage, it's going to have more energy and more intensity. But I I think that uh, the thing that connected me to the sensibility of Beefheart, and I think the reason why I was sympathetic to it and, and not sort of sitting there directly kind of learning from him, but just sort of being exposed to him and then just sort of going, oh yeah, I understand it, is that a lot of the ideas that he was, you know, the influences that he had were influences and issues that the people around me had. I mean, the interest Mm -hmm. in the blues, the interest in, you know, uh, of using the blues and combining that with like an avant-garde sensibility. So like with the Weeba show, that was, we called that avant-garde vaudeville. So it was kind (laughs) of like we were getting up and singing these songs, but then we would sort of mess them up or we would, you know, the, the big, joke there was that I was this lounge singer and I was playing with my two ex-husbands. One was the piano player and the other one was this gentleman who sat at a table very quietly while I sang and then he would sort of get visibly upset and then things would morph. (laughs) So, but, and then it was like, oh my God, they're going to sing knock three times on the ceiling if you want me. I mean, who would do that song? So we were all about like picking the song and then sort of picking about sort of creating the the sort of performative context of that song and and it was a joke but it was also sort of kind of a way of 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 reowning and repurposing culture and making it our own and i think that that is the 
that was the spirit of the creative spirit of the time. And, you know, I think Beefheart was definitely a, uh, an instigator in that way because he, he loved the blues. He was clearly influenced by the greats, but he also, you know, said, well, I'm going to sing like a blues singer, but, but the, what I sing and how I sing it and how I put words together is going to be my own thing, you know? So it was this, uh, very inspiring kind of, creative force. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I've talked to a few people on the show about the, the lasting influence of, of Don Van Vliet and um, off, off of the show, I've, I've had some conversations with people who have said something along the lines of, well, you know, nobody sounds like Beefheart and the magic band. And I said, well, that's, that's true. But I feel like if you were influenced by him and then immediately tried to go out and make music that sounded exactly like him, you'd be sort of missing the point. Because the, the, yeah. the, the whole idea is like he repurposed blues and rock and roll music yeah. and and made it his own language, like turned yes. it into his own vocabulary. Totally. So he could. So the the legacy of, of Beefheart is really you can make anything that you want. You can take yeah. the vocabulary of rock music or blues or what have you and turn it into this really personal alphabet of something that to, that expresses what what you want it to say. Right. Your ethos and his world is so rich and complete, you know, and, and, uh, and that's, I think that for me, like when I got the opportunity to cover one of his songs, so it's a good segue, you know, I was, um, there's this wonderful artist named Stu who goes by one name and he used to be in LA and then he moved to New York and he became quite successful and famous. And he had a show on Broadway called, um, Passing Strange. Um, and uh, he came back to LA and did this show at Cal Plaza, which is this big fancy venue downtown. And the name of the show was The Cover Problem because he had a band called The Negro Problem. And anyway, <laughs> and uh, he, he's a brilliant guy. Um, anyway, he invited me to cover two songs by my favorite LA songwriters. And um, this will kind of give you an idea of how my wild my influences are. I picked Joni Mitchell and Captain Beefheart. So I did Ladies of the Canyon by Joni Mitchell. And then I did Lick My Decals Off. And at that point, I was just working with um, guitarist Ken Lassane and drummer Joe Berardi. And so we did it. We did Lick My Decals as this sort of blues trio. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I, I got off stage and I said, oh, my God, I've just sung this incredibly sexual song for this, like, you know, big audience of people with their kids. And it's like, why did I pick this song? Uh, and I was kind of embarrassed, but I did it anyway. And then my husband uh, said, well, you should really cover this song for uh, I recorded um, a whole album's worth of songs with this group that I called Putinesca. And we decided to release it. We'd recorded it in 96. And uh, this was like 2004 or five. And we had decided to release it. And the people in the band were very sort of musically aligned with Ornette Coleman and mm -hmm. punk rock jazz. And um, so covering a Beefheart song made complete sense. It was just, but so they sat down, Joe, like, 
figured out the guitar parts, Wayne figured out the drum parts, Ralph figured out the groove, and they they really did a what I think. I mean, you don't have all the wonderful uh, percussive overdubs that are in the the original Beefheart track, but I think they pretty faithfully got it, and it involved a lot of counting, right? Because a lot of weird uh, stuff. But then I got to really work on the vocals, and I I the things that I did, I did transposed it up just a step because it was a little bit more comfortable for me to go up to rather, you know, a little bit higher because mm-hmm. he's got a very low voice. But I think the thing that was remarkable for me about the experience was I just fell in love with his, his heart. I mean, there was this beautiful kind of sensitivity and sweetness and the way he talked about, heaven being sexy as hell and doing my laundry. I mean, it was just kind of touching and, and uh, you know, the world all going down on its knees, looking for a little ease, like the pain of the world and how fucked up it is. And we just need to embrace nature. And I didn't really, I didn't, I hadn't really been sensitive to that part of his ethos before and so I just kind of really climbed into that I said this you know as a woman you know he's a very kind of a big bear kind of guy but (laughs) you know he's kind of a big sweetheart and um so it just really touched me and I think and I and I went with that I felt like this you know I went with the spirit of it you know and just followed that as my way of, of 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 trying to do it vocally because I I couldn't growl and do all that stuff he does so well. It's just not part of my my instrument, you know. Yeah, it's it, I, I'm really struck by how you 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 hit on the touching aspect of his his lyrics and the the sweetness. That's, yeah, that is something that that I've talked about because I mean his music has this reputation as being a bit forbidding and and difficult and and kind of and abrasive. Yeah. Um, and he, as a man, certainly was capable of being a rather tyrannical presence, yeah, I, at least to to his bandmates. I read that. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. there is this immense sense of kindness in in his yes. lyrics and in, in his love of animals, in his love of nature. Yeah. In all of his character sketches, like on Trout Mask Replica, on Pachuco Cadaver or when Big Jones sets up, they're these yeah. very like kindly, good hearted like uh, camaraderie with other people who are maybe a little bit off kilter and he's yeah. singing of them admiringly and lovingly. Yeah. And yeah, he, the, on, on lick my decals off, which, which as you said, is a, is a very, is a very sexual song, very carnal song. Um, yeah. but he works in these, uh, very sweet ideas about the, the, it's all about the birds and the bees and where it all went wrong and where it and all, where belongs. all belongs and the earth all go down on its knees looking for a little ease which is I mean, a wonderful like quadruple yeah. entendre in that you know it, it's that's that's a very sexy line but also it it evokes like prayer and it evokes yeah. you know supplication and and yeah. need it, it's yeah, it's the the twists of his his language and his brilliance as a lyricist. Um, yeah, amazing. I'm, but then also he takes that very sort of wild sexual stuff and then goes, "I'm going to go on and do my washing." Yeah, you know, very domestic. Sort of, yeah. yeah, but but it but to me, like my sister wash doing her laundry is like the most 
like meditative, important things she does. And she's like this like serious intellectual. So I, I just feel like he talks about life being integrated. You know, there's that sense of balance and it's just a, it's a really kind of amazing worldview that he has. So, and you don't really, I guess for me that when you, the, the cool thing is when you cover someone else's material is that it really gives you an opportunity to, you sing it day after day after day after day and you go, how can I make this my own? It really kind of allows you to um, sort of peel off the layers um, and understand where someone's coming from. And yeah, it was a cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. The, the richness in the music and the lyrics is something that in doing this project, I'm, I'm struck by again and again, that, that the reason these albums and, and the music he and the magic band produced, you know, that 50 plus years later, we're, we're still talking about this music is there is so much to delve into and unpack and, and think about and, and rub up against and the, you know, a few different people have said on Trout Mask, most bands would have taken one of the riffs in a song and made an entire song out of it. And one oh, of these yeah. songs has like 28 of those riffs because it's just yeah, these, yeah. so much musical inventiveness packed into a short uh, frame. You mentioned um, you mentioned Joe. I am um, the what I first heard of the the Putinesca project because um, I'm a fan of Joe Biza, who, who I hope oh, I'm pronouncing yeah. his last name right. That's right. Uh, who is for for listeners who maybe aren't aware um, first gained prominence in the group Saccharine Trust, which is one of the great um, I think Fabulous. unheralded uh, L.A. I guess they started as a punk band, but they they ended up being again this kind of unclassifiable mix of punk and yeah. jazz and avant garde yeah, and, and poetry. Jack Brewer, I mean, he doesn't sing; he he gets up there and recites these incredibly brilliant. I mean, he Joe. I mean that. Well, let you can go ahead with your. But the one of the reasons why I think Joe was so open to doing the like my decals is because of his work with Jack. But go ahead. I, no, I think that you're you're probably absolutely right. The only thing I was going to add is if anyone listening to this is not familiar with Sacron Trust, I, I I can't imagine someone who likes Beefheart not liking oh. something like We Became Snakes. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. Check, play, check out Sacred Trust if you haven't heard them. And Baez has also played with Universal Congress of. Uh, mm-hmm. He's worked with Mike Watt on on many different occasions. And yeah, so that was how I first first found out about it. How did was was did you just meet him as part of the LA scene back when you back when you yeah, first came out? Yeah, it kind of it came to be out uh, sort of in a crazy backsided way. I was um, working with a guitar player uh, named Steve Stewart. Um, we were in a band together called the Pearls and we had started like doing these spoken word music projects. Um, and I was setting stories to like, we did a, a cover of ventilator blues by the Rolling Stones. And oh, that's a good song. Uh, it's a great song and sort of oddly appropriate right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sad, sad, but true. Yeah. So, uh, and I was all set to do this, um, new music seminar with like one of these South by Southwest kind of things. And I was checking out this drummer who's incredible named Danny Frankel. And um, Danny was going to play drums with Steve and I, and uh, we were going to do this thing in San Diego. And uh, at the last minute, Steve said, I can't do the gig. I'm moving to Santa Barbara, blah, 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 blah. And just bailed. And so 
Danny showed up at rehearsal with Ralph Gordetsky, who is uh, a longtime collaborator with Joe, was in uh, Universal Congress of with him. And so we just started playing and we didn't have a guitar player. And so we were like this power trio, drums, bass and voice. And we went to San Diego and Joe and Danny and Ralph were playing together by themselves. And then Joe just decided to sit in and it worked. It was great Uh, because with Ventilator, what I was doing was telling the story and they were improvising while I was, you know, telling this really wild story. And then I would sing the chorus and we would go into the chorus. And so it sort of was this combination between free jazz and, and blues. And so I started sitting in with, with them a lot. They would play down at the men and I would come up on stage and do ventilator blues. And there's a, a line where I say, you're a lesbian, you take it up the butt, which was, <laughs> that actually happened. This woman said that line to me and it's a very long story and I'm not going to waste your time, but if you ever go check ventilator blues out, it's very funny. But that became the beginning of, uh, we basically, we recorded that song and then we decided we wanted to start writing together. So Ralph and I uh, started writing songs together and that became Putinesca. And so, and then, then we did like my decals off. So that's how it happened. But Joe is just, you know, Joe has this very unique way of, um, uh, of, of hearing music and, and putting it out. He doesn't like, if, if you think that something should go da, 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 he'll go da, 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 dee. He'll, he just doesn't, his sensibilities, he's kind of reminds me of Beefheart. He's not predictable. He's got, uh, you know, Ralph used to say, you know, Joe will always turn something upside down and backwards. And, and, and so when we were writing, Ralph and I, I would like take these dreams that I had because I really didn't want to like do conventional songwriting mm-hmm. kind of moon and June rhyme things. So I would take these dreams and Ralph would come up with a, um, a bass riff and I would come up with a vocal line and then it would go, oh, this will be really great. Joe could do this. And then we would bring it to the band and and realize it fully. So his Joe's sort of trademark uh I would, I don't know whether iconoclastic or idiosyncratic, any, some of that sort of his unusual way of playing the guitar was always a major factor in how the music was conceived. He is one of those people that I'm always astonished is not revered more in guitar player circles. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I, you know, was a guitar nerd growing up. I used to read all the, the magazines and stuff and, you know, it, when I was when I was a, a, a kid reading them, it was like every month a new cover of Eddie Van Halen, and right. it, it was just like the same people. And then going back and listening and hearing what he's doing on those Sacred Trust records, I mean, the, the guy's a brilliant musician and just a, an absolutely phenomenal guitarist. And yeah, it, it's it's. I was going to say that it's a shame that he's he's not more more heralded for that, but at the same time, he's produced so much brilliant work and and seems to continue to be doing so that I think he's very content. I mean, he's a very, um, I mean, sure. Everyone wants, well, sometimes more isn't always better, you know? Absolutely. I mean, he, he's, uh, you know, he, he tours, he did a whole solo tour, uh, through Europe last year or the past couple of years before COVID hit. Um, he's still playing with Ralph in, uh, um, 
the Mechalodiacs, which is just on fire. They're so good now. And, um, and that part of that unit I play with now. So um, I play with Vince Maroney, who's also played a lot with Watt and Ralph. Um, and we were like in the midst of recording an album when COVID hit, but uh-huh. uh, I, uh, Joe is like, you know, he's, he's, he does uh, projects where he's like reconnected with some of the people from Congress and, and gone on tour with them. So he's, he has a real devoted following and, um, and he has recorded an amazing body of work. The stuff he did with Putinesca, some of the, the playing on that is just, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's like some of his best stuff, I think. Um, I, yeah, he's, he's, and he's just a treat. He's a great guy to work with. That's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. Yeah, that he's, he's, a, he's, he's not a monster. He's, he's a real, he's very funny. <laughs> and uh, just, yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, he's seen, I got to see the, um, when it was the Reunited Sacred Trust, which was, gosh, probably a decade ago now or something like that. I, I got to see them play down here in San Diego. Uh-huh. And uh, that, he was i only briefly spoke to him but he was he was seemed extremely affable yes uh so you mentioned that you, they when you guys worked on the the song you took it up did you say a half step or a step to i think we took it up i think that whether well, i think that b part d- starts it on a g so he's singing it in e and i i took it up to whether i want to hold your hand or rather so i just took it up a whole step because it just was a little bit more comfortable. It's hard for a woman to like be loud down there, you know, mm-hmm. to cut over the, the, the texture of a full band. Um, yeah. So, but we, uh, I could have taken it up higher, but I didn't want to, I wanted to stay in that part of my voice. So say low. What, what, yeah. One thing I've been, and this is a sidetrack and, and, Darren, the producer, when you're listening, you can cut this out if you want. I'm just asking because I'm I've always been curious. So is it harder to project in the lower range? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about it, harm, you know, like all the like, I mean, all the big time rock singers, I mean, even like Robert Plant when he was in Led Zeppelin, they're all like way like up in this octave. Yeah. You know, and they're singing in uh what we call the pharyngeal voice, that you know, really bratty, but that, that tends to, you know, like opera singers sing in that range, like, you know, two to three Hertz because that's above the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I was listening to Beefheart this morning because, uh, you know, there's that whole thing about he's got a five octave range. Well, it's, he's got that song. I'm going to boogladize you or whatever it is. Oh, called. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And he's singing a low E there, like down here. And then he doesn't just go up to this E, which is what I thought he would do. He jumps to this E. <laughs> so, you know, but which is obviously his falsetto. But um, he 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 I loved his um, his freedom with his voice. He just used whatever part of his voice that he felt like using. You know, it was like sort of he had he had this kind of Jackson Pollock kind of way of using his voice where he doesn't I'm I should sing here or sing here. It's like whatever the the text and the music called for, he would color his voice to make it suit the song. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, like, I, it when wasn't I had to like, 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You finish your thought. I'm sorry. Well, no, it's just that because I was listening to a guy. Sometimes he sounds kind of dopey like this. <laughs> sometimes he sounds kind of edgy like this. You know, right. so he's really playing with what I would what I you know if I was nerding out and talking to singing teachers, playing with the color of his voice, the timbre of it, and and like a regular like a regular sort of mainstream artists wouldn't do that. They would say, my sound is this. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't fuck with it, you know, because of the sort of commercial, you know, you have to sort of just have one voice because the audience can't handle more than one thing. But but Beefheart is just like, I'm going to be like this and I'm going to be like this. And, you know, just sort of like wildly, because it's just, he's painting, you know? He's painting with his voice. He's painting with his words. And... And, That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, when I had um, Samuel Andreev on the show, I think it was was Samuel. He he uh, said that it's almost like he has a different character for yeah. each song. Like he's kind of inhabiting yeah. a different person with each yeah. song. And there is this delightful elasticity to his voice. Yes. Like on yeah. when when Big Jones sets up, it's this almost cartoon character voice at the beginning at that high higher pitched falsetto, yeah. and then he just swings down into that that big howlin wolf you know mid-range that that he could do the the reason i asked about low voices is just i've always one thing that i've always been very curious about is i mean growing up kind of a a nerdy um music obsessed kid in the 80s and 90s i of course loved rem and the 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 first three rem albums stipe is singing in this like baritone range like this very low voice and then around the time of i think life's rich pageant or document it's like he suddenly kicks up a a whole register and i've always Uh wondered like why did he change his style not that it's bad not that i dislike the later rem albums but i wondered why there was that dramatic shift and i was i was talking to to someone about it and their theory was it was just hard for him to sing and be heard over the band singing in that that lower range and that's part of what makes those early albums so murky because you can't really understand what he's saying as his voice is kind of mixed in with the rest of the band. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, I think for singers, if you're not, you know, like I, I went through a lot of that myself because when you're the, the, with the writing process, if you're writing just with guitar or like bass, like I wrote with Ralph who played bass, um, the texture is very thin. It's just bass and voice. But then once you add drums and guitars and all that, that if you're singing down in like this down here, that register, then that's where the guitars live. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're competing with all that that bandwidth. And if you go higher, there's like that pocket where the voice can just, you know, uh, be heard. The thing is that's tricky about that is that, you know, singing up higher like up in here for a guy is hard work you've got to really work at it and uh most guys just tend to shout up there and so to learn how to sing he michael stipe probably got singing lessons you know and (laughs) very uh, possible um so yeah so singing down here is really easy but it doesn't cut so really um i've heard this said and you could probably write a phd about it that the um, the tessitura is what they call it of uh, rock and roll has been moving up over the years. Interesting. Yeah. So like 
you know, the rock singers of my era, like in the 60s and 70s, sang much lower than the rock singers of like the 90s and so on and up. It's just everything is just rising. That's interesting. With with yeah. outliers, I'm I'm sure. I mean, I'm I'm immediately thinking of Freddie Mercury, who was had a, a was able to hit hit staggeringly high notes back in the seventies. Yes, of course. Yeah, that's true. He was, and he probably kind of maybe was the shepherd that kind of led people up into that. I mean, him and I mean, obviously Robert Plant was up there too, but that was the kind of the beginning. And now, like Ed Sheeran and all these guys are like living up in up here all the time mm-hmm. so guys really have to work at that that's not easy to do it's hard yeah yeah i wonder if michael jackson had, had an influence on that as well the, the yeah see yeah he omnipresence did. of his voice in the 80s you bet yeah he was so a big <laughs> uh on lick my decals off so the for for a singer the the structure of the song bears no real resemblance to any kind of traditional song structure there's no verse chorus verse there's there's very little repetition in terms of the music. It's it's uh, shifting as as was much of his compositional work around the time of Trout Mask and Lick My Decals Off. It's moving from one thing to another to another to yeah. another. Right, that right. Is is semi semi disconnected or seemingly disconnected. Um, in terms of just the timing on this song, was it a challenge to stay in stay in the pocket and stay and and stay along with the band come in when you were supposed to come in I don't think that I had a hard time with that um, because I I felt that um, you know I I listened to that other and I can't remember the guy's name that was on before whose example that you gave me the one that did um, uh, the first song uh, ha 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 Frownland what was oh, the yeah. name of the very bright guy um Oh, my, uh, on on the show, you mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, my, yeah. My friend, my friend David Lipson. Yeah. So he talked about sort of the structural thing of how the that we weren't going from the one to the four to the five, but just sort of like we'll do this bit and then we'll do that bit and that mm-hmm. bit, you know. So I think that lick my decals off has a little bit of that sort of we're gonna we're gonna groove we're do this riff and then we'll do this riff, um, and I so I kind of. Um, felt comfortable with that. I did have a hard time with the uh, whole kit, kit and caboodle in the kitchen sink line. And I thought it was funny in the Zoothorn Rolo book, the, the, uh, the lunar notes, he talks about how he had a hard time with beef heart on that, that they couldn't sing, sing together. That was the only part of the song that was really challenging for me. The, everything else just kind of, I would just kind of feel the groove of whatever that, that moment was, whether, and, just hop along. And I, even though I didn't go for the quote unquote, like the texture of Beefheart's voice, like trying to be growly or edgy or anything like that, I did pay a lot of attention to his phrasing Mm -hmm. um, and how he would hold certain words out or delay entrances and sort of the, the, the cadence that he was working with, which I felt was not so musical as more kind of poetic. And so I really like, I tried to really, I mean, I didn't not say like try to slavishly imitate it, but I used it as a guide. Sure. You know, and that was, that was my kind of my way into the song. That, yeah. The, 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 how dominant his voice is in, in his music. I know when they, when the magic band did their, their, uh, 
like reconstituted magic band tours in the the early 2000s and John French would take the vocals on songs he said that he more or less did the vocals as as a tribute to Don and tried to sound as much like Van Vliet as mm-hmm. possible because mm-hmm. he didn't feel like any the audience would accept a different voice right. over that material um but with your with your take on it you you mentioned the that that whole the whole kit and caboodle that's hard to even say much less yeah. sing along <laughs> along with that guitar line and i believe the bass is playing in a totally different time signature at that moment so that has yeah. to be that has to be very very uh you're standing on on shaky ground yeah 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 but what i i really love about the the putinesca version is like you said van vliet has this kind of bearish uh sound to his voice where he's this kind of frightening intimidating uh you know the derived from that uh howlin wolf growl sound that can be very right. feral and and um and unsettling in in some ways although if you grow to love his music you of course grow to love that voice um when in your version with the singing in that that lower register but with less of the growl um really brings out like like you say the sensitivity and the the sensuality in the lyrics in a way that you just can't that van vliet's voice is so um so strong and so uh feral sounding it it's not you you miss some of the some of some of the little the subtleties of of the the song and the you know that like we were saying the earth all goes down on their knees and uh the the heaven sexy as hell life is integrated goes together so well and so on like the 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 sweetness and the the sensuality in it is is more pronounced i would say in in the putanesca version yeah, well, it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like you're hearing Doris Day. <laughs> I mean, there is it's it's rather than I. I mean, I, I when I listened to it again this week, I was going Jesus, you know, because people would like da 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 da, and then you hear this <laughs> this very plum smooth sound kind of going in. I'm going, people, you know, his fans must have go, what the fuck? I mean, there are people who were. Some people really liked what I did. Other people didn't, and I can under, I can appreciate that. But you know, but um, I, I <clears throat> again, I just I felt like um, you know, you have a choice. I I was I'm not capable of imitating him because I'm not a man. So I mm-hmm. sort of had to. I, I my choice was to say I'm going to do it my way because this is who I am, but I'm going to honor his his brilliance and his spirit as much as possible. And that was just sort of the journey, you know, uh, you, you have no idea how much money I would pay for an entire album of Doris Day doing Captain Beefheart songs. Oh, it'd be hysterical. That is what I would, <laughs> if I could, if I could just create like manifest an album in thin air to hear that, I would, I would dearly love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, when, when people cover him and they are, clearly imitating him or yeah. you know trying to sound as much like the original as possible again i i wonder a little bit what what the point of that is like i i love the group xtc i think they're a great band they do a cover of el guru that more or less sounds like the original like the they're they're imitating his voice they're they're playing the track pretty close to the original and I mean, I'm sure it was a great deal of fun for them to do, and they do a pretty good job nailing what it sounds like. But uh-huh. there's part of me that's like, you're not really putting anything of yourself into it. Then you're you're yeah. just you're just 
you know, paying homage, which there's something to be said for that. But I, I do think it's much more interesting when when the the cover version is is taking it and putting a personal stamp on it and and finding finding what is it you uh, or you know what is your band in in that music that you're playing yeah well i mean sometimes you know uh, i think you know sometimes we do good things just by by necessity just i i i didn't really have the option of of being able to sound like him. So I, I didn't really have the choice, you know, as because- <laughs> relatively few singers have the option of actually sounding anything like yeah. that. That, that, yeah. that was quite a voice. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I mean, most, most guys, if they work at it, you know, I mean, he had a huge range, but you, you know, men have two octaves of chest voice and women only have one octave. It's just like, it's just like a physiological thing, you know? And is that primarily where his voice was was coming from on on Lick My Decals Off? Is is that chest voice? Yes. Oh, totally. Except that, well, the thing that he does that I love is that, you know, he uses a lot of that, huh, huh, you know, that kind right. of, that that we call it a cry, huh, where he's going from that head voice into his chest voice. And that's a very, I mean, that's like you hear that all over like Elvis Presley, Rockabilly, oh, sure. Little Richard, you know, it's 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 part of the vernacular, but um he 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 does it really well and and like you said he's his voice is super elastic. So even though he's he goes down into the basement, I mean going down to a low D and E and then popping up two octaves I mean, I've heard a lot of guys go from this E to that E, but not this E. So he's He's really, he, there's a freedom that he has uh, that is just like, you know, he's safe. He feels safe vocally. He doesn't sort of say, well, I can't make a high sound like that. That that wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be masculine. You know what I mean? He, there's no sort of like uh, uh, sort of social convention standing in his way. Absolutely. Yeah. He, yeah. he used it to, to its full potential. And, uh, I mean, in a, in a different, in a different life under a different set of circumstances, he could have been a absolutely fantastic blue eyed soul singer if that had been his, his choice. But instead he, he chose this path of making, you know, some of the most singular music that has, has ever been created within the realm of, of quote unquote popular music. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned that um, you are still you were working on a project with um, kind of an auxiliary of some of the people that you had worked with yeah. in, in Putinesca. Yeah. So Putinesca basically was um, with uh, with Joe Biza on guitar, Ralph Gordetsky on bass and Wayne Griffin on drums. And um, all the songs that we wrote for uh, that record that includes our cover of Lick My Decals the songs were written by Ralph and I, and we were, we've been a songwriting partnership since I met him in like, I guess, 93. So we, uh, after we did Putinesca, which was, we recorded it in 96. Then we um, both became part of this band that did Kurt Vile music. So we went mm-hmm. sort of from that into this sort of uh, heavy duty um uh, 1930s German music, which was really fun. And then after we did that, then we we decided to release the, the 96 recording of Putinesca, which meant the whole band got back together again. We learned all the songs again. Um, 
and uh, we performed them and we did the cover and we, and we did a lot of shows. And then I went to graduate school and got a degree in uh, music so I could teach. And uh, while I was in school, I didn't really gig or do anything with anybody. But then right after I got out of school, I started writing with Ralph again. And one of the projects I did, I weirdly, it, it's so like kind of, uh, connected to Beefheart just because it was this whole sort of nature song cycle uh, called My Skin Craves Soil. And um, it was all about sort of being in the backyard and sort of witnessing, you know, uh, cats being eaten by birds and birds eating worms. And um, it was a very uh, sort of idiosyncratic musical piece that Ralph and I wrote. And it was just the two of us uh, doing all the music. And then we uh, started incorporating more members uh, into the band. And then that's when Vince Marooney joined the band. And he's this amazing harmonica, saxophone a player who's toured with Watt and has played with Joe. Um, and so the project that we're doing right now includes Vince and Ralph and then um, Brian Christopherson on drums, who was also in Saccharine Trust with Joe and um, uh, Michael Alvarez on bass, who's done a lot of work with uh, Vince. So it's 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 just it's a, com a community of musicians that have all sort of been in each other's bands and sort of mm -hmm. have a vocabulary and 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 a, a a comfort level with with the kind of music that we do. And so we were tracking. We laid everything down in December and we're getting ready to do overdubs and then you know we can't record right now because being in a recording studio is probably the worst place to be for covid so. yeah well yeah. i i sincerely hope that that things die down enough that you are are able to get back in and and work on that project um yeah. selfishly because i really want to hear it because that sounds awesome but uh, yeah it's, on, it's great <laughs> on, on another level just because i mean that's that is that is your passion and and it's it's everyone's everyone's kind of been been uh taken off at the knees with this this pandemic so yeah ho hopefully we can hopefully things will will get to a point soon where where we are able to it, the normal is not attainable again but hopefully something that that it, where people can perform and and make music and make art and get out and and see each other yeah yeah it's it's going to be different coming Absolutely. back it's i think that uh it's 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 important to remember that that the that big shifts do happen uh with because of in technology and stuff you know like television radio even recording even lps were you know they they changed the way we do things and this is the world's not going to be the same um and maybe and that will be for the better in some ways i hope I hope so too. I sincerely hope so. Uh, are you are you able to um, continue teaching, doing distance distance teaching? Yeah. The weird thing is, is that um, I'm part of an organization that's like an international organization of teachers called the Institute for Vocal Advancement, and all my training was done online because I work with teachers from all over the world, um, and so we've always been very comfortable working in this environment and. Uh, you know, we can focus on the voice, um, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, 
And so when COVID happened, it's just, I just, I moved all my students online and, and it was just like, bam, we go. And so it's, I've been teaching a lot because I think people are just cooped up and they need something to do. And sure. it also, I think it helps people to be able to express themselves and, you know, um, connect with music. So it's, it's been a good thing, but, uh, you know, so yeah, this, this kind of music teaching totally works online. Well, that's good. That's good. And, and I'm sure that you are, are providing a valuable source of sanity for people who, who are desperate for areas to express themselves and for things to things, doing something creative. And I'm, I'm glad that there's, there's still that, that outlet available. I wonder how many people have taken up new musical instruments during this, this period of time i i think it's it's been you know i it's i've been reading stuff in the paper and people are saying i think saint vincent said something really interesting she said that i'm not writing anything new because i'm not going out in the world and sort of seeing sort of accidents and being inspired by them because i'm not going out into the world everything's so Mm -hmm. crazy so she said i'm just sort of going back and revisiting stuff that i've done already and i was like really comforted by that because I kind of have writer's block. I mean, but in a way I've just started, you know, like really working on my piano playing and learning all these other things that I didn't have time for or the mental space to really dig into because I was, you know, too busy in this other world that we were in, which doesn't, it almost seems like, when was that? Yeah, I know. It's like, because this has gone on so long. It's like, it's so yesterday. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of people are, I hope that are, you know, finding sort of meaningful things to do with their time. Yeah. I I actually found myself thinking the other day, maybe I should get a saxophone. And then I remember, then I remembered that I value my marriage. And (laughs) I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that, my my that might bring things to a screeching halt pretty quickly. But what about but what about guitar? You play guitar, right? I, I screw around on guitar. To to say that I play it implies some degree of technical proficiency, but I, I mess around on on guitar and bass. Um, uh huh. And but the the vast majority of this this uh, summer has been mostly working on this this project, which is just talking about creative work, which is is has been again just. At, I'm so glad that. I, I I have had this to do and been able to just sink into the world of Beefheart and yeah let it, let it completely blot out everything else. It's a good well. It's a good well to go down. Yeah, that's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm not don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I did want to give you the opportunity if you have anything uh, that you would like to plug or that you would like to signal boost. Uh, the the floor is yours. Oh, I would just say that if you're interested in hearing Putinesca or any other projects I've worked on, um, just go to Bandcamp and type my name in and I've got a page and it's got all my recordings there. I will make sure that there is a link for that included in with this episode data as well. There's, there's a lot of great stuff there, folks. Don't, don't sleep on that. Hit up, hit up Bandcamp and check that out. Cause, cause it's all very much worth your time. Uh, and Miss Weeba Garrison, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you, Joel. This has been a wonderful experience. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening.